Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. If you managed to make it, I hope you had a good time at StokerCon. Myself, I woke up Saturday morning to a house-shaking boom from down the street and a power outage that lasted pretty much right up until the Stoker Awards were wrapping up. Talk about a bummer. But it sounds like a pretty amazing turnout and a fantastic time for those who were able to make it. Huge congratulations to those that took home the hardware, including a handful of awards for Tim Wagoner, who we featured several times on the show. The exceptional quality of horror writing showcased this year really continues to set the bar for our genre and demonstrates both the breadth and depth of what horror has to offer. Thanks to the Horror Writers Association and everyone involved with putting it on. Another reminder that our design contest is in full swing. It's actually pretty fascinating for me to see the difference between this contest and our fiction contests, where the entries were flying in at a demon's pace for our last Flash contest, the design contest, not so much, which means if you've got some dark and devious designs up your sleeve that you'd like to share, you've got a good shot at the prize. 
Of course, it's your artistic wizardry that will really seal the deal. TalesToTerrify.com slash design contest. Visit, read the details, and submit. I'd love to see what horrors your creative minds can conjure. You can also create an account on TeePublic, upload your design, and send us a link. And since I gave you a breather last week, another reminder that submissions are also still open. TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions is where you'll get all the details you need to put your frightful fiction in our bloody little claws. Speaking of submissions, thank you to Bryce Dolly for joining our team as a reader. Bryce has narrated for us in the past and has graciously agreed to lend his keen eyes and mind to us to help suss out the most terrifying fiction from the pile. It's great to have you on board, Bryce. If you're up for the challenge of making Bryce's nights a little more sleepless, not to mention Meredith and the rest of our editorial team, head over to TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions and do your worst. I dare you. Getting back on the road this week, we're going to take a quick leap backward before we move forward east from Ontario. I mentioned last week that I have a bit of a strange affinity for Wendigos, and I realized there was one tale I'd been meaning to share that had somehow fallen off of the radar. We learned last week what happens to those suspected of being Wendigo, and the fate of those who cured them. But our story tonight involves a more intimate look into what it means to be Wendigo. So this evening, let's hop back to northern Alberta and meet a man who's experienced it firsthand. When Inspector Sever Gagnon entered the room with the holding cell in the small northern police detachment, he was immediately struck by the size of the man on the other side of the bars. At six foot three, he cut an imposing figure, especially with his broad frame. He was clearly a man used to handling himself in the wilds. In fact, Swift Runner was known as a capable hunter and trapper, as well as a devout family man, if occasionally a bit of a rabble-rouser and it was the result of the latter part of his reputation that he and his family, including his wife and their six kids, his brother, and his mother-in-law, had moved away from the community to a small homestead further north. His presence at the trading post, though, was still a welcome one. He was generally friendly and well-liked, and his hunting skill brought in valuable meat and furs. The large man in the holding cell seemed entirely unfazed, almost bored as Inspector Gagnon examined him. You know why I'm here, the inspector said finally, more statement than question. I do, replied Swift Runner. My family, you're looking for them. A pause, and then you won't find them. They're dead, you know. Starvation. His even tone and flat expression 
gave nothing away. Was it the shock of tragedy or remorseless guilt that made him seem so detached? Inspector Gagnon couldn't tell. Help me understand what happened then. Help me find them, said the inspector. And to his surprise, the captive nodded and immediately got to his feet. I can do better than that, Swift Runner said. I'll show you. With Inspector Gagnon and the shackled Swift Runner at its head, a small party of officers set out for the homestead. The slushy trails and dripping foliage made travel challenging, but warm sunshine and cheerful birdsong certainly helped make up for it. The winter had been a bitterly cold one, and so far spring had been slow in coming. But the scent on the breeze teased of warmer days to come. Before reaching the homestead, Swift Runner led the party off the path and into the forest, along a well-used game trail. He had a trapper's camp not far from the home that he used as his base of operations when out in the wilderness. Just at the edge of the camp, he stopped at a small earthen mound. He stood for a moment at the base of the mound, tied hands clasped in front of him, head bowed ever so slightly. My son, he said finally. The boy had been the first to die of starvation, Swift Runner explained. He'd taken the boy's frail body out here and buried him away from the family. As he explained, somewhere deep within the man's eyes burned the tiniest ember of pain. But his face was slack, his voice flat and distant. We, we have to check on him, Gagnon said, his typically gruff demeanor laced with discomfort. Swift Runner simply nodded and stepped away from the grave. Rumors had surfaced when Swift Runner had returned to the community in the spring without his family, had claimed they'd perished of starvation, and yet, somehow, he looked well-fed. Rumors began to circulate, nasty rumors, and Gagnon had to be sure. The men made quick work of the loose soil and uncovered the heavily decomposed remains of a small boy. Ghastly as the corpse's appearance was, mostly bone and rotted tissue, Gagnon breathed a sigh of relief. The body was intact whole and untouched. It was a good start, and the inspector hoped, prayed, a sign of things to come. When they reached the hunting camp, though, the hopefulness evaporated. Almost immediately on walking into the sheltered clearing, they began to see bones. Many, many bones. Clean bones. Gagnon knew immediately what kind of bones, too. But it wasn't until he spied the undeniable smooth circle of a human skull next to the fire pit that the last shred of hope slipped through his fingers. 
Swift Runner sat on a log next to the long-extinguished campfire, waiting patiently as Inspector Gagnon brushed crusted snow from the smooth orb of bone and lifted it up for the man to see. Swift Runner nodded. My wife, he said matter-of-factly. There was no hint of nervousness in his voice, no sorrow or sadness, but no pride or glee either. He just seemed hollow. All right, Inspector Gagnon walked over to face the man, to stare straight into his empty eyes. What happened? The truth. All of it. Swift Runner's eyes bore right back into the inspector's, a hard, black gaze. Gagnon fought not to look away, but met the gaze and held it. Finally, the corners of Swift Runner's mouth tightened into a grimace, and he let out a long sigh. Sit, he said, motioning to the log beside him. I'll tell you. It began a few days after he buried his young son. A tiny, incoherent mumbling in the still of night, like the susurrus of a distant creek babbling in the back of his mind. But there was a sentient cadence to it, something that would keep him hovering on the edge of wakefulness as he strained to decipher the message in the static. Winter was a difficult time for those living in the wilderness north of Fort Edmonton, and this had been a particularly tough one. Living off the land was a challenge at the best of times, but when the icy winds began to blow and the snow collected in deep, suffocating drifts, catching enough food to eat, especially for a large family, could be downright impossible. At first, He'd mistaken the voices for the rumbling of his stomach, but each day it grew in frequency and intensity, and each day the sentiment became clearer, even if the words themselves were still foggy. Then came the dreams, nightmares of intense, hollow hunger, sticky and dripping red. Here, in the surreal landscape of dream, The voice was clearer, more commanding. Feed, it growled. Fill the black void swelling inside of you. You allowed the first one to go to waste, and look where that got you. Feed, my child. Become strong. Swift Runner was an imposing man, even in dream. He would fight. In the dreamscape, he would swell up and overwhelm the swirling darkness threatening to devour him, push it away, hold it down, and banish it to the shadow corners of his mind. Each morning, he would awake exhausted, as though he'd spent the night locked in a physical tug-of-war. But as large and strong as Swift Runner was, the entity invading his mind was stronger, and its power only continued to grow. Each night, it became larger and more imposing, and he struggled harder to push it back. And each morning he awoke, 
with a larger piece of himself missing. Until one morning, the thing that opened its eyes and his body wasn't Swift Runner at all. It was Wendigo. Pure, unfettered hunger. Free from the shackles of Swift Runner's conscience, the creature wasted no time in satisfying its ravenous appetite. Laying within arm's reach was the warm, soft flesh of the man's sleeping wife. With vicious speed, it pounced on her and squeezed the life from her throat. Her final wheezing breath had barely escaped her lips before it began to feed, grasping at her flesh with gnarled fingers, teeth rending skin and meat. And when it had eaten its fill, it quietly carried her tattered body out of the sleeping home and down through the forest to the camp. It would come back to finish its meal later. There was plenty more game to catch. The house was awake when it returned, but wearing the body of Swift Runner, it had little fear. The children cried for their mother at first, pleaded to know where she was, what had happened to her, and for her to come back. But young minds were like soft clay to the Wendigo, and it began twisting and contorting them, too. Where it had fought inch by inch to overtake Swift Runner, it required almost no time at all before it had convinced one of the older boys to murder and butcher his younger brother. And in a lustful blood frenzy, while the boy hacked and cut at his sibling, the Wendigo grabbed the youngest, only an infant, and hung it by the neck from a lodgepole pine in the yard tugging, pulling on its feet until its cries fell silent. In all, over the course of weeks or months, the Wendigo killed, butchered, and consumed Swift Runner's wife and all five of his living children, he told Inspector Gagnon. And your brother and mother-in-law? The horrified inspector whispered, Afraid to ask. Them too, he said. But, admitted, the mother-in-law hadn't been nearly as palatable. A bit tough, he had said. There was no denying the evidence. The missing family, the numerous remains, many of which were marred with human teeth marks, bones cleaned even of their marrow. Swift Runner had murdered and eaten his entire family. Worse still, he didn't seem affected by it in any way, which was strange for someone who had been such a family man. He just appeared empty, a husk. He was given a trial, found guilty, and sentenced to hang. The first legal hanging ever carried out by the relatively newly founded Northwest Mounted Police, I might add. Even when, months later, he was walked toward the gallows, he seemed detached, resigned. Or was it the Wendigo 
reluctant to release its hold. The hanging did not go quite according to plan, though. Between issues with blizzarding and discovering that the people of the fort had taken apart the trapdoor of the gallows to use as firewood, the delays had made the Wendigo Swift Runner almost impatient to be done. Give me a hatchet and I'll just kill myself, it told the sheriff. Save the hangman any more trouble. But a few extra hours' work and the gallows were fixed, the weather had settled, and soon Swift Runner stood on the newly constructed trap door, a heavy rough rope draped about his neck. He was given a final chance to repent, which he neglected to do, before the hangman pulled the lever and sixty onlookers gasped as the trap fell and his body dropped with full force, jerking as it hit the end of the rope with a heavy, dull pop. It was the first hanging most of them had seen. Most, that is, except for one particularly ecstatic visitor from the U.S., a man who later confessed it had been his nineteenth hanging. Boys, he said, wide grin splitting his face, that was the prettiest hanging I ever seen. Our first story for the evening comes from Charlie Davenport. Charlie Davenport is a staff editor and content manager for the Simply Scary podcast, as well as amateur writer of his own dark stories. In addition to being a lifelong fan of horror fiction, Davenport is an army veteran. He holds a master's degree in criminal psychology and uses his life experience to bring color to the traditional world of horror. Davenport discovered the power of storytelling early on, listening to his own mother terrifying neighborhood children on Halloween night, recounting classic folk tales like The Golden Arm. Davenport believes that it is always scarier to find the unknown in your everyday life. He believes that the horrors that are around every corner, or at the edge of the light on a dark night, are where we learn to be scared of the dark in the first place. Children of the Night, join me for Charlie Davenport's The Women in My Family, a Tales to Terrify original. I was 11 or so when my Nana, Nana DeMarco, not Nana Gallo, first let me in on this little secret of ours. The DeMarcos, my mom's side, are your basic fourth or fifth generation family. Good people, solid citizens, and no disrespect, but they're about as interesting as a saltine cracker. Nana G, on the other hand, she was a modern woman in many ways. Big believer in education, but she also had her superstitions. She called it Samakina, or the medicine tricks and treatments to deal with everything, 
from the common cold to the dreaded evil eye. Most of her cures consist of some combination of olive oil and a couple of spices, though my Uncle Fred was never without an iron key that he wore around his neck. Nana had given it to him when he was little to ward off his fits, as she put it. It was only when I grew up that I realized Fred was actually an epileptic who had a prescription for topiramate. Nana made sure he took it every day, but she had way more faith in that little key than modern medicine. Nana G was cooking, like she was most times I was over at her place waiting for mom to get off work, when she got this deer-in-the-headlights look on her face. Sarah, she said as she turned back to the pot. It was the same tone mom had used when she walked me through the birds and bees talk a few months earlier. I pulled my attention away from my copy of The Face on the Milk Carton that was lying face up on the kitchen table. You okay, Nana? Come here, sweetie. She waved me over to the stove, her squat, dense body barely bringing her eye level with the steam rising off her sauce. I shuffled over and Nana G cleared her throat. <clears throat> How much money are you supposed to put away from every paycheck? She asked, staring into the pot, a huge bubble just beginning to form in its center. Twenty percent, I said reflexively. At that point in my life, I hadn't earned a cent that hadn't come from babysitting or just doing some odd jobs for dad around the house, but Nana was big on fiscal responsibility and had drilled this into me from a very young age. What should you do with the man that treats you like a princess? Tell him that he should know to treat me like a queen. Ha! She let out a short bark of amusement and approval. That was also one of her favorites. She turned the gas on the stove down, letting the marinara simmer. The garlic and other spices filled every pocket of air in the kitchen until they burst and slowly penetrated the rest of the house. My stomach was already grumbling with hunger. Nana wiped her hands on the dish towel and turned to me. I ever show you how to make this stuff? She nodded at the stove. I smiled. About a dozen times, Nana. She looked up towards the ceiling and squinted. It was the same expression she made whenever she helped me with my math homework, as though the final piece of the equation had been plastered up there at some point. She let out a long sigh and then turned down to look at me. Well, I guess there's just the one thing then. She walked over to the pot of coffee she kept running all day and sat down at the kitchen table with a heavy and weary thud. After a long pull on her mug, she gestured for me to sit down. For a moment, her eyes unfocused and her jaw hung slightly open. Her breathing continued steadily, enough so that I could smell the acrid scent of the coffee wafting out of her mouth. Nana? Her mouth closed instantly, and I watched her eyes focus back on me, and I remember very clearly thinking, she's back. She harumphed and then looked to the clock hanging high above the sink. She pursed her lips together and said, We moved to this country when I was twelve or so, and your great-grandmother thought the best way for me to learn English was just to start school with all the other kids. You remember how you felt on your first day of school? I'd burst into tears when Mom dropped me off at Carnivale Elementary, earning me the nickname Gushing Gallo. Now, imagine you barely speak the language. I remember just wandering from room to room, not even being sure if I was in the right classes, and I couldn't ask anyone. By the time we went outside for recess, I was exhausted. 
I was so lonely and just sat down next to the fence, didn't care if I ever got back up again. Suddenly I turned and there he was just sitting there. I'm Alfred, he said to me, and then just stared at me with those big pretty eyes, waiting for me to say something back. Eventually I managed to tell him my name was Georgina Ricci, and even though I couldn't tell you why, there was something about your grandpa I just trusted even then. We'd sit next to each other every day. He'd tell me all about the neighborhood, what teachers were the best bet for playing hooky on, and just everything else under the sun. Little by little my English improved, and I really started to count the time between our little visits. This view of the guy that had read Goodnight Moon to me and had slipped me an extra five bucks for candy whenever he could, well, it didn't really surprise me. He'd been a firefighter for nearly 30 years, and his silhouette had more in common with a bear's than any man I'd ever seen, but Grandpa Al was pure sweetheart through and through. It wasn't until he got sick that year, close to Christmas, that I realized how much I'd come to count on him. I know now that it was just a couple of days and that it was no more than a bad head cold, but at the time, I was certain I'd never see him again. So when he plopped down next to me the next week, looking a little worse for the wear, it was the happiest I'd ever been up until that point. I think that's why I kissed him right there and then, Nana said and waggled her eyebrows at me. No, I said. It's always a little weird to find out that your family had lives before you came along, that they were once themselves young people that did things like date or kiss each other. Yup. Oh, Mrs. Kaminsky was rip shit. You two get away from each other this instant. She was a real battle axe. It was just a peck, but it was then I knew. I knew we were going to get married. I knew we were going to own a home. I knew we were going to have a little boy. I knew we were going to have a whole life together. That's beautiful, Nana. I meant it too, but I was already turning back to my book when I felt her weathered old hand drop around my wrist. The look on Nana G's face was the grimmest thing I'd ever seen. No, sweetie. This wasn't me having a good feeling about him and me. I didn't go home to my mom and tell her that I'd found the one. No, I knew. I knew that he was going to get drafted the week after he turned 19. I knew we were going to get married before he shipped out. I knew that even though he was going to come back to me, that he'd see and do things that he'd never tell me about. Her hands were trembling. Nana had always been an emotional woman, but I'd never seen her like this. Her voice cracked with it. I knew that I was going to be pregnant with the little girl, but that I was going to lose her. I knew that my mother was going to die before we had your father. I knew that rat bastard Russo would convince Al that he had the opportunity of a lifetime and it would nearly bankrupt us when he took the money and ran off to Philadelphia with it. I also knew that one day I was going to have to leave him. I wouldn't want to, but I wasn't going to get a choice. What are you saying, Grandma? That day I kissed your grandpa, I saw everything that was going to happen to me and him from that point on. The good, the bad, everything. My mother had the same thing happen to her when she kissed my father for the first time. My grandmother on her wedding day saw every moment of her life with Grandpa Giorgio, just like her mother had told her happened on her own wedding day. I don't know why, but it's just something that happens to us. 
something that'll happen to you. I should have asked more questions that day, but I didn't. I just nodded and helped her set the table. A couple of days later, she was gone. I just kind of packed the whole thing away in the back of my mind. I didn't forget it or anything. I have clear memories of sharing the story with my friends over a couple of drinks in college or with some of my co-workers at the clinic when we were on break. But it was just something to say, to add my bit to the conversation. You tell me about your uncle who wears the tinfoil hat, and I'll tell you about my grandmother who would cure your hemorrhoids with vinegar and witch hazel and swore she could tell the future. Ha ha, next round is on you. Then I met Jerry Mullins. We met off of Match.com, which isn't going to win any prizes or make for a gripping cocktail party story, but straight away I could tell there was something between us. There was a comfort when we were together and bubbling excitement that sat right in my chest when I knew I was going to see him again. He did this thing, it's really silly, but he'd take off his glasses when I was talking to him, and he really wanted to pay attention, like somehow they'd get in the way. I don't know why, but it was the most endearing thing I've ever seen. About two weeks into dating, I invited him over to my place for dinner, enticing him with the Gallo family recipe sauce. He came into the kitchen while I was stirring, commenting on how amazing it smelled, and leaned in over my shoulder to get a better whiff. He might have moved first, or it could have been me, but somehow we started kissing at that awkward angle, shifting our bodies for a better grip without ever breaking the contact of our lips. It didn't happen like I'd always imagined when I'd retell Nana's story, but as we broke contact, I felt a flood sweeping over me. We were moving in together, and after only a year of dating— our friends warned us that we were rushing things, but we just smiled at them, secure that we knew better. An engagement ring clacked against my teeth as I tried to down a glass of champagne, corny but oh so sweet. I stood in the bathroom, holding up a pregnancy test with a positive reading, calling for Jerry with a mixture of terror and excitement in my voice. We moved our plans for the wedding forward just a bit and finally found a venue upstate that could squeeze us in. Then... I wake up in our apartment. It's a week before our wedding, and I'm concerned that the bump might show under my gown. I tell Jerry that. He's already up and watching something on the news, but he doesn't respond. I repeat myself, but still get nothing from him. I get irritated enough to toss a throw pillow at him, and when he turns to me, his face strained like I've never seen it before. I swear I felt the baby kick. On the screen, the president is saying something about the growing tension— but the blood rushing into my ears doesn't let me hear it clearly. I wake up again. Jerry is standing at the window, a thin gray blanket wrapped around him. Even with it, I can tell he's lost a lot of weight. I don't recognize this place. It looks old, battered. There's nothing in it but us and the mattress we sleep on. Outside, I can see ash falling from the gray sky onto the gray ground. Then... Nothing. The film unspools. The needle is torn off the record. The batteries go dead. The night I kissed Jerry for the first time, right in my very own kitchen, I saw our entire life together, and I knew there wasn't going to be very much of it.
That was Charlie Davenport's The Women in My Family, as read by Emily Strand. Emily Strand is a writer, musician, and college professor living in Ohio who really enjoys robots. Thank you, Emily. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Our second tale tonight comes from Gina Easton. Gina Easton is a writer who has finally decided to pursue a career as an author. After a very rewarding and interesting time in the nursing profession, she now wishes to focus on her primary passion, writing. She loves the short story format, and she's hoping to publish her first novel, also in the horror genre, in the near future. When not creating plots and characters, she enjoys spending time with her husband, socializing with friends, and watching mystery, horror, and sci-fi shows. She adores the macabre, the weird, and the magical aspects of life. She currently lives in Toronto, Canada. Listen with me, children of the night, to Gina Easton's The Sins of the Fathers, a Tales to Terrify original. Hey, Mr. Jaworski, I've got those boxes you were looking for. The elderly man in the gray fedora shuffled towards the direction of the voice. 
Behind the cash register, the woman smiled, beckoning him with a wave of her hand. As he reached the cash desk, the woman bent down and retrieved several small to medium-sized boxes and thrust them towards Samuel Jaworski. "'Why, Ruth, thank you very much. You shouldn't have gone to so much trouble,' he said, his soft-accented voice no more than a hoarse whisper. The woman's friendly, open face continued to smile at him. She was middle-aged and had a blonde, frizzy perm. Oh, it was no trouble at all, Mr. Jaworski. You know how difficult it is to get boxes, especially ones these size. These are the best ones for packing things. It's Leah's moving day soon, isn't it? A week from today, Samuel answered in a wistful voice. It saddened him every time he had to think of Leah, his only child, moving away from the family home. She must be really excited, Ruth beamed at him. I remember the first time I moved away from home. I was twenty, just about Leah's age. She's nineteen, Samuel said softly. Well, it was the most exciting feeling. For the first time I actually felt like an adult, all grown up, able to make my own decisions. Of course, in those days women didn't live on their own as much. I shared a place with two other girls my own age. Why, we had some adventures, I can tell you. But of course, Leah must be doubly elated. Her own apartment, plus starting university. The arts program, right? Samuel's eyes glistened with pride. Yes, it's a very competitive program. Leah was one of the top selected students. That's just great. Ruth's eyes took a dreamy, faraway expression. What I wouldn't give to be that age again. It was such a magical time, she sighed. What about you, Mr. Jaworski? Do you wish you were young again? A shadow momentarily darkened the old man's face. The sadness that lay submerged in the pool of his eyes now quickened to the surface. He thought back to his own youth bled away in the confines of Auschwitz, with the sinister shadow of the crematoria, his daily vista. The crematoria, which operated day and night, belching out the human remains of countless Jews and other undesirables. Three long years he'd spent in the concentration camp before the liberation by Allied troops. With an effort he forced his attention back to the cashier and her brightly expectant face. He had to watch himself. Even after all these years, the past still threatened, like a yawning abyss, to swallow him whole. It would be a gift from above to be young again, Ruth. But the Almighty has seen fit to let me grow old. Gracefully, I hope. Oh, without a doubt, Mr. Jaworski, Ruth assured him. As he gathered up the boxes from the counter, she added, Now you take care of that sore throat. Sounds like you're coming down with another bout of laryngitis. Samuel's lips formed a sad, sweet smile as he walked out of the store. A chilly blast of November evening air assaulted him, and Samuel shivered underneath his overcoat. No matter how warmly he dressed, he could never evade the cold that seemed to seek him out, infiltrating his bones and nesting in their very marrow. Unwelcome invader, this coldness stayed with him until the warm breath of spring once more whispered in his ear. Samuel wondered whether this year he'd last until spring. The frequent sore throats and bouts of hoarseness, the occasional difficulty swallowing, all made him think of one thing. 
Sometimes he thought he could feel the little lump of cells like a sentient force dividing and multiplying, planning its takeover of his body. He shrugged off the thought. He really ought to see his doctor soon. He began the short walk home, aware of the twinge of arthritis that had started in his hip. Samuel sighed. He'd better take his arthritis medication as soon as he got home. Experience had taught him that if he didn't catch the pain before it took hold, he would spend a sleepless night trapped in its relentless gnawing grip. In spite of efforts to focus on other things, he found his thoughts wandering back to his daughter. He and Leah had lived alone since Samuel's wife Anna had died. He shook his head with mild disbelief. It had been seven years since the drunk driver ended his wife's life. Sometimes it seemed like it had happened ages ago, almost another lifetime. Still, there were days when he expected to walk into his house and be greeted by the warm, delicious aroma of Anna's baking, his favorite nut strudel, to hear her gentle voice welcoming him home. He remembered the first time his daughter had baked him nut strudel. He'd come home one Sunday afternoon, eight months after Anna's death, to find the kitchen in a mess. Baking utensils and ingredients were strewn all over the place, a dusting of flour and cracked nutshell on the counter. The smell of burnt pastry permeated the air. Leah had turned to him, her twelve-year-old face anxious and close to tears. I wanted so badly for it to turn out, she cried in a stricken voice. I wanted it to be just like Mama's. Samuel had drawn the child to him, enfolded her small body against his, felt the delicate bony edges of her shoulder blades. He marveled at the fragile wonder of this creature of his own making. Hot tears of grief sprang from his eyes and poured like lava streaming down his face, leaving in their wake new lines of bitterness etched into his skin. It was the first time he'd allowed himself to cry since Anna's death, and now he felt like he would never stop. Soft, thin arms crept around his neck as Leah pulled him tighter. Buried in his shoulder, he felt his daughter's misery flood him like a river undammed, her tears flowing with his. They had stayed locked together for a long time, sharing the pain that each other for so long had kept to themselves like a carefully guarded dark treasure. After that, Leah had learned to bake almost as well as Anna. It seemed she'd inherited her mother's natural ability to throw ingredients together without need for a recipe. Samuel's waistline steadily grew until his doctor sternly informed him of the need to watch his diet. At your age... You've got to be mindful of your heart, Dr. Shapiro admonished. Reluctantly, Samuel found himself having to refuse the tasty, cholesterol-laden treats his daughter prepared for him. And soon, he mused gloomily as he let himself in the front door, he'd have to learn to cook for himself. Leah had tried to convince him to hire a housekeeper who could prepare meals as well as keep the house tidy, he gently refused, despite her firm urging. "'Why not, Papa?' she demanded. "'It would be so simple to have someone come in a couple days a week. "'She could cook and freeze stuff for you. "'Then you could just microwave it whenever you wanted.' 
He'd shaken his head sadly. How could he explain his feelings to Leah? How could someone so young and vibrant, so resonant with energy and expectation, possibly understand his need for solitude, his desire to protect his own little world from invasion by any stranger? It had been just the three of them, then only the two of them for so long. How could he tolerate a stranger disturbing that intimate sanctuary for even transient periods? How could someone who'd never endured the appallingly crowded conditions of the camps understand the blessed peace of having some space to yourself? Leah had no idea what it was like to sleep in such a crowded space that you couldn't straighten out your body without touching another person, so that your spine became permanently bent and crooked from years of sleeping curled up. Or that every breath you took in was someone else's stale and often diseased expelled air. She didn't know what it was like to lie awake at night soaking up the pain and misery that oozed like sweat from the other inmates, your body quivering under the constant barrage of lice that crawled and jumped among the filthy bodies. And for this lack of knowledge on his daughter's part, Samuel was eternally grateful. Leah grew up in relative prosperity. He and Anna had worked hard at their small business to make sure their daughter's every need was met. She went to private Jewish school, took ballet and piano lessons. When she showed promising artistic talent, Samuel didn't hesitate to enlist the services of a highly recommended art instructor. No sacrifice was too much for a daughter who'd been born like a phoenix from the ashes, from the dust and ruin of a shattered life. When she asked him questions about his time in Auschwitz, he answered truthfully, his voice flat, carefully devoid of emotion. It was important that she know the facts, but a part of him wanted to protect her from the suffering. Like an artist sketching a drawing, he gave her only the barest details, sparing her the heartache that deeper knowledge would bring. After his time at Auschwitz, it had taken him a long time to cast away the fear invoked by the memories of the looming crematoria, the layers of the corpses in ditches, the ominous hum of the electrified fences. Samuel thought, in those early years of freedom, that he would never be liberated from the terror and anguish which had become a constant companion. Like an invasive root, this tree of torment grew and blossomed within him until its poisonous tendrils intertwined with his very soul. He wandered, a man only half alive, stumbling through his own life, aware of the joy around him, but unable to absorb any of it. That is, until he met Anna. He was immediately charmed by her gentleness and strength, her tentative love, and the way she had of shyly looking down whenever she was uncomfortable or embarrassed, which was often. Samuel instinctively recognized Anna as a camp survivor. It was evident in the way she walked, her every move and gesture. Samuel had noticed this throughout the years, this ability to spot survivors. It was like an indelible stamp that marked their souls as surely as a yellow star that scarred their wrists. Until he met Anna, Samuel was haunted by a gnawing, guilty question. Why? When so many had perished in the war, was he still alive? Through Anna and her love for him, he learned the answer. It was his destiny and hers together to create new life.
Out of their love, Leah was born a true gift from God. All the doctors warned them Anna could not get pregnant. While in the camps and still a young girl, she'd been subjected to medical experimentation. So had many other Jewish women and girls. She'd barely survived the horrible mutations, and her reproductive system had been damaged. She was diagnosed as sterile. Nevertheless, both she and Samuel accepted her pregnancy unquestioningly, serene in the knowledge that this was God's will, His way of revealing their shared purpose in life. And now, nineteen years later, it was his purpose to let go of his daughter, to launch her on her independent journey through life. A tear formed at the corner of his eye. We wished Anna had lived to see her daughter grow up so proud, beautiful, and strong, with none of the fear that had stained her parents' hearts like black ink. He'd known this day would eventually dawn, but his paternal love had kept him blind to the fact that Leah was now a grown woman. It was still so easy to view her as a little girl in need of his strength and protection. But, he chided himself gently, who was it that needed protection? Since Anna's death, Leah's presence and the close bond between them had kept the predatory fears at bay. Lately, however, they'd begun to emerge from the shadows, black and menacing as in the years before he met Anna. Mostly, they assaulted him in dreams, in nightmare images of the camps, him all alone with nothing but disfigured corpses for company, the stench of death so thick it made him gag. Gleaming skulls leered grotesquely, skeletons in prison garb rags, the only sound the dry rattle of bones clicking together as they slowly ground to dust in the deserted barracks. He was utterly abandoned, bereft of comfort, he could only watch helplessly as black smoke belched from the guts of the gas ovens. But the worst nightmare of all was the one he'd buried in a deep, dark vault all those years ago. Now, when he slept, it clawed and thrashed its way to the surface, forcing him to relive the horrible event as crystal clear as if it happened yesterday. The gaunt-ravaged face of Samuel Jaworski, the young Jew he'd kicked to death outside the barracks one day. He was scared all the time back then, a young man newly promoted in the ranks of the Nazi regime, stationed at the notorious Auschwitz concentration camp. Proud of his new assignment, yet totally unprepared for the conditions awaiting him. As an inexperienced officer, he was given the unpleasant task of escorting inmates to the medical facility. Within those confines, barbaric tests and procedures were forced upon the hapless victims. He took to wearing cotton battling in his ears to dull the shrieks of agony emanating from the building. Sometimes he helped carry inmates back to the barracks once the experiments were completed. More often, he would toss their tortured, broken bodies into the pit behind the medical facility. Tear upon tear of fetid, rotting corpses lay in that pit. He and another guard used handkerchiefs soaked in camouflage tied around their nose and mouth to repel the foul stench. Even so, after a full day of medical duty, 
He was never able to, no matter how hard he scrubbed himself in the shower, to rid the reek of death from his body, and worse still, the spiritual corruption from his soul. Did he even possess a soul anymore? Samuel wondered. His life after the war had been one monumental lie after another. Killing the original Samuel Jaworski and assuming his identity had been easier than he anticipated. At the liberation of the camp, it had been a simple matter to don some tattered prison garb, cover himself in filth and excrement, and be assisted out of the camp by helpful Allied soldiers. Everything was so chaotic after the Allied invasion and victory. Pretending to be Jewish and an Auschwitz survivor was not difficult, especially as, with time and much cunning, he'd learned to impersonate a Holocaust survivor. His intimate knowledge of the horrors of the camp served him unerringly. He so immersed himself in his new identity, from the tattooed number and yellow star on his forearm to the strict observance of the Jewish religion and customs that he succeeded in passing as a survivor. Even his wife-to-be, herself a victim of the Holocaust, was fooled by his ruse. As the years went by, the pretense of his life became second nature. He carved out a good existence, escaping the fate suffered by many of his fellow war criminals. He genuinely loved his wife and daughter, and knew they loved him too. He hoped that love would afford him redemption he so craved for all the terrible acts in which he'd participated at Auschwitz. He knew they were terrible acts, atrocities as they were commonly termed. Yet if he were to be completely honest, he felt little or no guilt at his complicity, except for Samuel Jaworski. He could never rid himself of that image of the young man's face as the heavy black boots stomped and crushed the delicate bones beneath him. The smashed jaw and facial bones, blood oozing from the splintered skull. The look in the man's eyes, knowing death was imminent, yet there was no surrender there just a promise of a reckoning to come at some future time. Samuel sensed that time had come. One thing he knew for certain, he was no longer alone in his house. The nights when Leah stayed with her boyfriend, he felt a presence in the shadows, catching glimpses of a skeletal form at the periphery of his vision, ghostly whispers telling him what was going to happen to him that there was no escape from the fate to come. As he entered the foyer, he felt the shadows shift and murmur. One shadow solidified and emerged from the rest. Without surprise, he recognized the thin face and razor-sharp features of the young Jew whose life he had usurped. So, the old man said, my death is upon me, and you've come to take my life Am I to receive no mercy? Mercy is not what you gave, the wraith replied. You managed to evade punishment in this life, but death will not be so forgiving. You shall spend eternity in the place where you created hell on earth. Every minute of every hour you will breathe in ashes from the blazing crematoria until your lungs blacken and shrivel. You will be shackled to your memories, your nightmares. 
The voices of the damned shall torment you until you too scream in agony. Tears glittered in the old man's eyes. And what of you? You get the vengeance you crave? He whispered. Not vengeance, the shade said, as it pounced upon him. Retribution. That was Gina Easton's The Sins of the Fathers, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator who has read for Far-Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and Tales to Terrify, where, of course, he currently volunteers as editor. When not day-jobbing, he enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares life with an amazing partner, dog, and a cat. Thank you, Seth. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. If you're not a supporter already, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and merch packs. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put a smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales you can share your love of the show out in the world, too, with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will shoot you over to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy, custom, and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we gaze into the abyss with more Tales to Terrify. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.